We'd also like to thank our partners for helping to make the festival possible. Many of these sponsors have been supporting the festival since 1995, others for a decade or more. Some are new this year. We're grateful to them all. Thank you to our premier sponsor, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation. Thank you to our major sponsors, Albemarle County, an anonymous donor, Michelle and David Baldacci, the Bank of America, the City of Charlottesville, CFA Institute, Charlottesville Airport, Susan and Norman Colpitz, Dominion Energy, Renee and John Grisham, the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, National Endowment for the Humanities, the President's Office at the University of Virginia, and VPN Virginia Public Media. Thank you. Tonight's program, Southern Landscapes Real and Imagined, is a tremendous finish to our fourth day of the festival. Earlier this week, we heard stunning truths about contemporary mass incarceration and the World War II incarceration of Japanese American citizens. We listened to poetry that offers a lyrical invitation to new worlds. We could step away from current events through fantastic and fantastical fiction from a wealth of incredible voices. If we chose to stay rooted in nonfiction, we had excellent guidance through healthcare inequalities, environmental crises, vulnerable memoirs, immigration and colonialism, and nuclear deterrence. Yet the picture books offered to our youngest readers remind us that our deepest connection to each other across picket fences, across streets, across borders, that appreciation of each other's humanity is one we can find through stories. That's why we're here. The festival continues tomorrow, leading to our concluding event at 3 p.m., Poetry for Today, readings by Victoria Chang and Rita Dove in partnership with the Annisfield Wolf Book Awards. Tonight, we cross the lines between genres to explore the fact and fiction of the storied South through an immersion into place, history, people, and imagination. Before we begin, some brief housekeeping. Please silence your phones. If you'd like to share this event, use hashtag VABookFest. Please consider supporting the festival online at vabook.org give. Your support means so much to us. We encourage you to provide feedback for this event and any you attend or view through vabook.org feedback or use the QR code on the printed guides. Please support festival authors and our local booksellers by purchasing a book. The authors will sign books after the program and New Dominion Bookshop is selling books. Now to introduce our speakers. W. Ralph Eubanks is the author of A Place Like Mississippi, Ever is a Long Time, and The House at the End of the Road. He has written for the Chicago Tribune, Wired, The New Yorker, and NPR, among others. He is the Carl and Lily Forsheimer Foundation Fellow at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard University. Jocelyn Nicole Johnson is the author of My Monticello, a fiction debut that was called A Masterly Feat 
by the New York Times and that won the Weatherford Award for work that reflects Appalachia. It was a finalist for the Kirkus Fiction Prize, National Book Critics Circle Award, the LA Times Book Prize, and long-listed for a Penn Faulkner Fiction Award and the Story Prize. Johnson has been a fellow at Tin House, Hedgebrook, and the Virginia Center for Creative Arts, a veteran public school art teacher. She lives and writes here in Charlottesville. Imani Perry, author of South to America, is the Hughes Rogers Professor of African American Studies at Princeton University, where she also teaches in gender and sexuality studies, law and public affairs, and jazz studies. She is the author of six books, including Looking for Lorraine, May We Forever Stand, and Breathe, A Letter to My Sons. A native of Birmingham, Alabama, she lives outside of Philadelphia with her sons. And our moderator tonight is Justin G. Reed, Director of Community Initiatives at Virginia Humanities, where he leads statewide partnership building and engagement efforts. He is a public historian, a preservationist, and native to Farmville, Virginia, where his family were litigants in the US Supreme Court decision outlawing local massive resistance to school desegregation. Please welcome our speakers tonight. Thank you. everyone. I am truly honored to be moderating tonight's conversation uh, with three uh, incredible writers, uh, intellectuals, uh, southerners. I think for, for, for me um, there was so much that resonated um, in each of their works and I remember you know, and even talking about this event to others uh, there was one question someone asked well why why is uh, Jocelyn's book being compared to two uh, nonfiction books? And my response was, well, they're all dealing with the South and it's all fiction, <laughs> uh, right? You know, as, as we've seen, you know, most of what we've grown up learning about the South is, is truly uh, more, more fiction than, than fact. And I think you know, something that all of our, our writers here tonight do is really peel back the layers of, of, of what the truth is um, and what the future could hold if we don't grapple with you know, the uncomfortable history here in the South. And yes, Charlottesville is the South. I think some people may be in denial about uh, Charlottesville, um, but I think something too that the, all of our writers have said is that we're in the United States, and so the South is, is not somehow unique. Um, the challenges that we face in the South are, are not unique to the South. These are challenges that we face as a nation. And so I think all of you, again, I'm so grateful and, and honored to be on stage with you and I'm, I'm excited to hear more um, from you this evening. I wanted to, to start off by just simply uh, sharing a, a few things from, from each of their, their works, uh, a short uh, quote that I think helps uh, summarize this, this evening. Uh, you have uh, Ralph who really talks about how Mississippi has inspired some of our nation's greatest writers. 
Um, and you know what, and, and a lot of the writers you listed, I guess I never really connected them all to Mississippi. It, it was remarkable to see that, you know, when we talk about, you know, Natasha Tretzway, when we talk about Jasmine Ward, when we talk about K.C. Lehman, I mean, all of these incredible uh, young writers who are, are really prolific right now are being inspired by the landscape. And you, you wrote, uh, the Mississippi, in our imagination, um, Mississippi has become the South writ large and even the nation writ large because it is a place that inspires its residents to contemplate how much they love it as well as how much they hate it more than any other state in the union. It is a place that sometimes avoids its past rather than confronting it. And then I think that you know, serves as a perfect segue to something you said, Imani, where you wrote, as the South always reminds us, the land provides another place for accounting. Even without formal archives, one can mine it. And Jocelyn, I'll just kind of end with, with something you wrote. Um, you said the body also remembers. And it's important to, to, to recognize again that, quote, uh, we gave this land their blood, sweat, and tears, and those who owned them profited. And the, the last passage I, I want to share is, is something uh, that you wrote, Imani. And it says, quote, the truth is that all the learning in the world won't create a new set of race relations if so much remains out of the grasp of those on the disfavored side of the color line. And I think you know, what we've seen here in Charlottesville is, is that is very much true. Um, here we are in the city, you know, the top institution in Virginia, you know, one of the top universities in the world, but all of the learning in the world won't create a new set of race relations if so much remains out of the grasp of those on the disfavored side of the color line. And Jocelyn, I think you've, you've shown us you know, what could potentially happen if we don't truly grapple with these inequities in our history. So I'm, I'm gonna jump right in. This is, this is a burning question that, I, that I've been having. Uh, my, my partner and I, we've been debating it quite a bit. She is from the Gulf Coast. I'm from here in Virginia. And something we're, we're always arguing about, on Thanksgiving Day, is rice an appropriate side? <laughs> I, would, I would love to hear like, each of your opinions. As, as fellow Southerners, unfortunately she isn't here tonight, but I'm gonna take your answers back to her. Should, should rice be served, not only on Thanksgiving, should it be served at every meal? I'm gonna say, oh hell no. Okay, okay. I'm gonna say, tell her we said yes, but no. She's okay, from the Gulf okay, Coast, right? right? Yeah. I'm doing pretty good right now. Jocelyn, what do you, what do you say? I have no comment. <laughs> okay, okay, all right, all right. So, I mean, I, one, more, one more question. This is, you all are really helping us out right now. Uh, when it comes to barbecue in the South, North Carolina or Tennessee? Oh. I'm not gonna tell you my opinion, but I just wanna hear what you have to say first. Well, I have to say, I have to go with, I'm a, first thing I do, I'll be in Memphis on Tuesday, I'll be stopping at Central Barbecue for dry rub ribs. Okay, all right, all right. 
Do you have yeah. an opinion? All right. I hope I'm not the outlier here, but I, I like I like North Carolina barbecue. Or that's what I ate when I was a kid. I'm, I'm going with North Carolina. So I haven't had barbecue for a long, long time. I stopped eating most meat 35 years ago. Okay. But as I remember it, okay. <laughs> Tennessee. All right, there's two Tennessees and one North Carolina. All right. I'm, I'm Tennessee, I'll just go ahead and admit it. And, and I didn't say Virginia, I'm sorry to all, all the Virginia barbecue lovers. All right, thank you for settling that debate. And I feel like I've, I've won twice tonight. <laughs> thank, you. thank you. So all of you are really inspired by home. I think mm -hmm. it really comes across in your writing. Um, I think the, the, the detail, I think honestly what most resonated with me was how familiar it felt um, reading each of you. Um, how, how familiar each of you felt as I was reading you. Um, there were certain things that you would say and, and I, I could tell that maybe we had some similar uh, upbring, upbringings, some similar childhoods and familiar connections. Um, I would just love for each of you to spend a little bit of time talking about home. Hmm. Um, you know, describe it to someone who has never been there. Um, what are the things that have, have shaped you about home? And um, I would love for you to also share a passage of your work that, that maybe reflects that. Uh, let me just start? Okay. Um, so I was born in Birmingham, Alabama in 1972. My home is a place of incredible dignity and aspiration, violence, um, subjugation, elegance, and grace. It's a place where the, the notion of elegance and grace, though, doesn't, um, doesn't mediate the defiance. That it's a place, you know, one of the things that I often cite for my students is Birmingham is a place where, people, where black people started to fight on the buses in the 30s, not the, not the 50s and 60s, <laughs> against segregation. That it's a, and so, and I, I place myself as someone who was born nine years after and three miles away from the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing. And so being raised in a black community and nurtured, born really into a black community that cherished me and all of the children so deeply in the face of a society that considered us fungible or didn't consider us, right? Is, is, is sort of the, it shaped the disposition that I have. Um, we're also a place where the movement lasted long past, and that's what I'll, um, I'm gonna cite. Uh, the movement lasted past um, 1963, which people often forget. Okay, I'll read a little bit. Um, this is actually from the Birmingham chapter. In 1964, eight years before I was born, my family moved from Titusville to Ensley, Ours was the third black family on the block and the last white man on our block, which changed from white to black across, few across a few years, diligently kept up a sign that read, zoned for whites. Each morning on the way to school, the neighborhood boys kicked it down. Each night he put it back. It was a choreography on repeat until the old man died. In 1970, Johnny Harris's family also moved into a white neighborhood in Birmingham but Johnny Harris's block had white cops living on it. They didn't like integration, 
and they weren't satisfied with symbolic hatred. They dealt in vengeance. One day, he was arrested while going to work. Harris was shoved into a lineup and told by the cops that if he didn't confess to three nighttime robberies and a rape charge against a white woman, more cases would be put, up, would be put on him. Despite his having a long list of alibis, Harris's court-appointed attorney convinced him to plead guilty in their first meeting. Harris was convicted and sentenced to five consecutive life sentences. He was sent to Atmore Home in prison down near Mobile. In the first few years of the 1970s, Johnny Harris became politically conscious. He studied the struggle for independent black nations, workers' movements, black nationalism, and socialism. As these ideas swirled in his head, he organized a prison union, Inmates for Action. The newspapers of that period would call the protest led by Johnny Harris and Richard Mafundi Lake at the Atmore Home in Prison, Alabama's Attica. The prisoners, tired of ignored petitions to the public and the courts explaining the physical abuse they suffered inside, staged a 100% effective work stoppage. While sugarcane rotted in the fields, the prison administration tried to defeat the strike with every tool at their disposal. They threatened mass punishment, pointing their guns at the prisoners sitting down in the yard. The prisoners held firm. They tried to divide the white prisoners from the black, but they remained unified. Finally, they beat, transferred, and isolated over 300 inmates, hoping to disperse the ringleaders. The protest turned into a rebellion. A guard was killed. Every single one of the rebels was expected to pay. Johnny Harris was placed in solitary confinement, a vicious barracoon. There he took the name Imani, which means faith in Swahili. There is a picture of me and my mother in an old photo album. She wears a purple gele. My hair is uncombed and my fist is raised. It is 1975. I am three years old, wearing a shirt that says, Free the Atmore Holman Brothers. As a child, I used to speak to Imani on the phone. He called Collect, his voice scratchy through the heavy black receiver. He reminded me to mind my parents and be good in school over the choppy line. He told me once that my name inspired him to change his and not to forget it. He was from Birmingham, so was I. He was locked up, I was up north. When he was finally released, released in 1991, he said it was talking to children that allowed him to keep it together after so many years. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Jocelyn, would you like to go next? I'll go next, that was beautiful. Um, so I kind of was born into this complicated sense of home. Uh, my parents, my older brother, they were all born uh, in South Carolina and I was born in Virginia. I was like the, the one Virginian in our family. I was born in Northern Virginia. But when my parents first moved to Northern Virginia, they um, really would go home like every, I felt like it was every other weekend. We would pack up the station wagon. There would literally be pillows up to the ceiling. Like you couldn't move. We had like a, a tradition of mom's tunes. Every tape was mom's tunes, and we put those in, and we drive ten hours to Lexington, South Carolina, to the Sand Hills, and to my cousins, which, um, especially my older girl cousins, I was kind of the youngest of a cohort. Were they were the South to me, right? So I would go. Summer camp would be going. Um, my parents would just leave me with my cousins for, it feels like for months, but it was probably just for weeks. Um, you know, we had Sand Roads. My grandmother lived there. I have so many aunts and uncles. And the interesting part is we would go home to South Carolina, and then we would come back home to Virginia. So it was this duality of home. And I think that really kind of stuck with me uh, as, I, as I grew up. 
for my writing, you know, I've lived in Virginia, I lived in um, Northern Virginia, I taught in Arlington, I went to school in the Shenandoah Valley, and I've lived in Charlottesville, Albemarle County area for the last 20 plus years. Um, this is the South too, and as I wrote uh, this collection, my Monticello in particular, I really had to reflect on the very particular history of here, especially in the wake of August 12th, 2017, August 11th and 12th, um, our, there were a series of um, events talking about the history of here in this really specific way, the history of this theater, who sat where at one point. And it felt like these kind of ghosts from the past were just being, I was being reminded of them in this really specific way. And I think it really informed this, um, this book and particularly the, the novella at the end of it, My Monticello. Um, so I'm gonna read um, just a few paragraphs from the beginning of one of the short stories called Virginia is Not Your Home. This used to be the title of the whole collection before I wrote the novella, My Monticello. And so this was kind of a, this idea, you know, of this duality of home, this twinning of home, where, who should be able to feel at home here in this country? When should I feel uh, comfortable in my own skin? What is this, the thing that I carry around when I think about where I belong that feels slightly different maybe than the person next to me is carrying and how that shaped the way I see these spaces that I'm in. So I'm just gonna read a tiny bit from that one. Virginia is not your home. They hung that name on you at birth, but Virginia was never your home. Read Nausea by Sartre and give yourself a new one. Trumpet your new name to the liver-spotted washroom mirror like a coronation. <coughs> Gape your mouth and angle your tongue behind your teeth. While you're at it, work to remedy those other afflictions, that fetid high hill R that has planted itself in the middle of words like wash. Scrub the stink of manure from your clothing and as your young body churns over the basin, keep whispering your new still secret name. Believe that if you can just change this, you can change everything. When your furtive girl body begins to unfold, pull your hair back so severely that the boys don't tug you down below the bleachers. Take to wearing father's faded flannels to ward off solicitations to their string of tissue paper dances. Don't accept it when they ask, who do you think you are? Whenever you test some sweet protracted word on your tongue. Don't accept the moldy hymnals the marquee salvations, the wayward way that mama courts heaven like a scornful lover. Don't ache too badly for the milk cows in the pasture, their, their slick contoured ribs press pressing through. Take French, lock your doors, and trust in your own 16-year-old self. I'll stop there. Well, uh, I was born in Collins, Mississippi in June of 1957, and my family eventually bought a farm in a little town of Mount Olive on Highway 35, and I think that's the place where I returned to 40 acres on one side of the road, 
with the creek running as the dividing line and 40 acres on the other side of the road. And it was a very safe place of refuge for me growing up in Mississippi during the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, having that land, that, that, that um, this place that was our own. And we even named parts of it. And there were, there were like different places there. And as I was working on a place like Mississippi, one of the regions that I had to write about was my own native Piney Woods. And it's a place that's changed a great deal from when I grew up there. It was a largely farming community. Um, family farms are, are really dying. My, my little town is dying. The feed and seed store that kind of was the hub of the town is, is abandoned. So I wrote about in a place like Mississippi what it was like to return to the Piney Woods and kind of what it was that I saw there. So just a you know, couple of paragraphs of, about that I'll read. Holding up a mirror between what once was and what remains will most certainly be the inspiration for the next generation of writers from this region. Throughout the Piney Woods, you can see elements of the past on back roads, where there are small timber operations with piles of logs stacked together neatly like matchsticks, just as they would have been a century ago. But these new timber operations are working to make room for the large cattle and poultry farms, which are carved out by shaving away the tree line to create lush green fields of grass, the seed for which is dropped by low-flying aircraft. These fields create new vistas on the landscape for those who wander down these roads, including people like me who are looking for artistic inspiration. On these Mississippi roads, the past and the present exist side by side. The past is there for all to see, yet perhaps is only noticeable to those who still remember it. Perhaps it is not the past Mississippi is losing on this landscape. Instead, we are witnessing how the past and future are slowly becoming knitted together into one seamless garment. All right, thank you all for coming out. We're gonna end it right there. <laughs> I, I, don't, I mean, there's so much to digest in what all three of you have shared. I mean, it's, I, I think for me growing up in Southern Virginia, you know, which is the Northern tip of the black belt, I think that, that familiarity that I, found, I, I felt comes from the fact that this part of Virginia, I mean, just South of Scottsville is deeply connected culturally to South Carolina, to Mississippi, to Alabama. You know, there are some strong cultural ties there. And I remember during the pandemic, uh, when I was feeling it the most, the one thing that really kind of brought me out of, out of the funk that I was in was I went home and I sat on my cousin's porch. And then my cousin lives on land that had been handed down from my great-great-grandparents. And we just sat there and just talked. And that was the thing that kind of jolted me back. And you know, that's the thought that came to me as I was reading all of, all of your works, you know, this importance of family and rootedness to a particular place. I think another commonality that all of your work shares is really the journey that you take us on. I mean, it, it is a, a literal journey, journey in your writing. I think for you, Jocelyn, this is mostly around Charlottesville, um, but for those of us who are familiar with the city's landscape, 
Um, I think a lot of us probably had a visceral reaction in, in, in the way you describe um, the, the city. There are places in Charles, but I'll never look at the same way again um, after, after reading your work. Uh, I was curious to know, really for, for each of you, kind of how these journeys, how these processes unfolded. Uh, Jocelyn, in my mind, I was thinking, how many times did you have to go up to Monticello? Like, how many times, like, how many you know, bus rides did you have to take up to the mountaintop? Uh, what did you do to, to get to that level of detail? I mean, I think you were accessing spaces that I don't think the, the, the typical visit, visitor is even aware of. Um, and I would you know, pose the same question to you know, all, of our, all of our guests here. You know, what was the, the literal literary journey um, for, for each of you? I guess I can, I can start, yeah. For, since my book is fiction and, you know, I think those of you who are writers, often stories come to you. And I think even the map of these stories, you know, I live right adjacent to First Street. And First Street, uh, if you haven't read the novella, it's a story of that for which the whole collection's name, My Monticello, which takes up the biggest chunk of, of the book. It's a story of a diverse group of Charlottesville neighbors, uh, mostly black neighbors, who are forced in kind of a near future time of unraveling to flee First Street, basically the, you know, around from the corner from where I live, um, after marauding white supremacists come and start to set fire to their homes. Um, this is, the story was a reaction to um, the Unite the Right rally that happened here, the deadly Unite the Right rally, and a year of me kind of grappling with it and thinking about it and thinking about it and how it related to the past. At any rate, um, yeah, so I was looking at that neighborhood, the students I'd taught and knew there, the times I'd walk there with my um, my really bad dogs, the times I'd walk there, you know, push my son in a stroller. Um, and then the literal drive to Monticello from my house, the proximity of those two spaces. Um, I, I cheated a little. We went by Brown's to get, you know, the, the chicken because that's just had to be in the book. Um, <laughs> the jaunt bus, you know, you have to have the jaunt bus in the book. So all these landmarks, these things that are just part of my day. And then going up to Monticello, going um, past the tavern, you know, going past the orchard and driving up that drive. Uh, I've done that with my, our, we had a family reunion. We have a big family reunion. We wear the matching shirts. And once we did have it here when my son was about six and we did go to Monticello, um, a group of uh, almost all black people, Southerners, it isn't lost, it wasn't lost on us, right? This, that space is a plantation. Um, I've gone there um, with my husband's family, a white family. I've gone with his grandmother. She stole plants. <laughs> she put them in her pocket. Um, right, and so I, and I've seen that evolution at Monticello of how they tell the space. So to, to make a long answer short, um, I really use my actual experiences of Monticello as opposed to this kind of studying of it. But then after I'd kind of had a draft of it, I, I really felt compelled to make sure the details were right. I wanted to make sure that when you read the story, whether you're walking into the gift shop or whether you're walking into um, Jefferson's chambers, each thing felt like it where it was and the way the floor 
felt the way it was and that it sensorily felt like something. And the only thing that saved me, because I'm not an academic, was that I only had to understand it as my protagonist in Asia, love, would. And so I, I knew it the way docents know it. I knew it the way a tourist walking through it. And I did spend extra to do the tour where you get to go upstairs. And, but only once, and I just took notes, and it made it so much more fun <laughs> to go to Monticello with this secret purpose that I was gonna put um, my characters, my black characters were gonna touch all the things, and my um, children characters, and my neighbors, all those characters were gonna, it was like night in the museum, they were gonna be able to pick up and touch all these things. So that's how I kinda got to them. Um, well, I have to say, I really started on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, and it's where, really where Highway 49 and US 90 meet, um, that Natasha Trethewey talks about in her poem, Theories of Time and Space. And, you know, there's, you know, there's no going home, is what she says at the beginning of, of that poem. And I think, as I was working in this book, I realized that for me, in looking at these places, there was no going home. I had to look at them the way that these right through the lens of the writers. And I think what Jocelyn was talking about, the way that she was looking at Charlottesville, I had to imagine what it was that Natasha was seeing there. And I thought about what I once saw there, but I had to kind of put that out of my head and begin to see it through the lens of the, the writer who depicted that place, or you know, standing in Eudora Welty's bedroom on Pinehurst Street and looking out across at Bellhaven College and thinking about her hearing the piano there and that cueing her to create the character of Virgie Rainey in, in Spring Recital. So all of these, so that's the way that I really began in actually finding Anne Moody's farm. The shack is gone, but going to that place with a copy of a of um, coming of age in Mississippi on the passenger seat and then driving around trying to locate the place, taking the pictures, coordinating them with a local historian who told me I had indeed found the place. So. Yeah, and and I'll, I'll just add too, I remember you, you wrote that um, coming of age in Mississippi was, was the book that, that most influenced you early on in your life. It really did because it was, it let me know that I grew up with the, in a life of privilege. And that's what it, that's what it really did for me is that, that opening line where she talks about growing up on, I can't remember the man's, Mr. So-and-so's farm, and I was thinking, I grew up on my own farm. I grew up on my own land. And I felt protected there. And it was something that Ann Moody could never feel. Um. <coughs> So I started with atlases. I bought sort of old-fashioned atlases and maps and started, and it's not really the start because in many ways, this book I was writing for years before I was writing it. You know, there were pieces, there's vignettes and reflections and things I had written that didn't have a place. But I, I got these atlases and I was trying to trace the roads and when they were created and then also the land formations to try to get a, f and, and also marking the places I had been and the places I needed to go and where I wanted to go 
back to. So, they, so it, was, it began with mapping. Um, and then in the process of tr you know, retreading places, and every place that I wrote about is a place that I've been multiple times, but and part of the reason there are places, there are whole sections of the book that had to be taken out was because I couldn't go back because of COVID. And so then that began another process, right, where I was going back, not just in, I was, you know, the thought was it would be sort of the re-encounter with the place and history, but then I was also, then I had to also re-engage memory in a different kind of way, and texts, right? And so, you know, so Coming of Age Mississippi was also a really deeply influential book for me, but I also had a sort of Alabama chip on my shoulder about writers, because as the saying goes, Mississippi loves its writers like Alabama loves its football players. <laughs> and we don't have, and, and this, and so Albert Murray was like a, who you know, wrote South to a Very Old Place, and this was sort of a re, and it was sort of a re-engagement with the same kind of enterprise as that book was in the early 70s of, of, of looking back. And so I was sort of, he's sort of, he's my muse, sometimes he's my tar baby, I can't get unstuck from his influence. And, and so that, yeah, so sort of the, the, the shapes of the beginning. Imani, jo Jocelyn said something earlier about Monticello, I mean, as she was describing the, the, um, the level of, of detail that she tried to capture. It, I was sitting here looking for uh, something you wrote about your, your son being in DC. He had this reflection and I cannot find the page. I mean, it just immediately brought me to his commentary on, I guess, patriotism and the, the meaning yeah. behind these symbols. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, there's this moment, I should have asked, I did not ask him if I could put that in the book. Usually I ask everything. <laughs> I, was, I didn't I ask really, that part. Really, I was very impressed. Uh, how, how old was he at the time? I mean, sixteen, seven, something like that. It was, it was impressive the, 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 the critical you. analysis he was able to apply <laughs> to our nation's capital. But what he was trying, yeah. Well, thank you. I mean, as his mother, thank you. Um, <laughs> you know, I think what he what he was getting at, which in some ways is the heart of what the book is, to understand. You know, we have, I'm going to frame it in my own language and then get to the what he said that I think sort of helped me get here. We live in a context of these sort of competing mythologies about the nation state. And the nations always have mythologies. There's nothing unique about the United States. But there's one, I, I have a bad abbreviation of the kind of ever more perfect union conception of the country, right? Which is also connected to the way in which sort of the South gets treated as the sort of, you know, embarrassing cousin that we put in the back because of this, this you know. And, and then there's a lost cause narrative. And, and part of what he was saying is that in, in some ways these are not totally distinct, right? Because, you know, the critique that we have of the lost cause is really, you know, about the, the uh, let me say it this way. The Confederates thought they were the truest patriots, that they were being consistent with the prom, you know, with the promises of the Constitution, and they weren't entirely wrong, right? And that in both instances, we have this way of making the original sins of the nation um, sort of we pushing them aside and saying that in, act, in actuality we're, we were functioning in service of this ideal conception of, of what we would be, right? Whether it's states' rights or whether it's, you know, the promises of the Constitution, let's disregard the three-fifths clause. Or whether it's, you know, the southern states had to pay the debt for the Revolutionary War because that's where the prosperity was because of, 
you know, because of the value of un unfree labor and, and the land, right? Or, you know, the reason we have the electric. So, so part of what the observation was is that we want to tell, oftentimes you want to tell a story that, you know, well, there's a distinction because those were traitors to the nation. But that's, we say that because they lost, right? But if we're honest, the national project in general, the way that we describe it, is so often, in fact, a disregarding of actually what was what happened to make the United States the wealthy nation that it is, right? And so, like, if you think of, you know, Lehman Brothers, the most powerful bank on Wall Street, they began as cotton traders in Montgomery. That's not incidental, right? But in New York, they're not really talking about that. But that's really the legacy of the entire nation. Thank, thank, thank you for, for that. You know, and I, I guess the, and the reason my mind went to your, your son's, you know, re reflection is because I see, you know, a lot of your characters, Jocelyn, kind of grappling with this, this, I mean, really it's more than the double meaning. It's, I mean, it's just the multiple meanings associated with, with Monticello, and yet you have uh, your main protagonist being a descendant, you know, feeling as if uh, this symbol, really Monticello is this, this national symbol, doesn't necessarily belong to her. And she's having to grapple with, well, then who does it belong to, if not to me as a descendant of, of you know, the people who literally built this place and the man who designed it. I, I'm wondering, maybe without giving too much of the plot away, uh, could you talk a little bit more about your, your protagonist and some of the main conflicts that she's grappling with um, in um, the novella? Sure. So. Um in the novella, my Monticello, as I said, this group of neighbors um, are forced to flee their neighborhood. And what I didn't say is that they're led by Denasia Hemings Love, who is a descendant of Thomas Jefferson and um, Sally Hemings, an enslaved woman with whom Jefferson really had children. And um, a big part of me wanting to center that character is because I thought about myself uh, when I went to Monticello with my, you know, black family and how, why wouldn't it feel like it was ours too? What is this thing that made that space feel slightly um, exclusive to, to me? Uh, part of it was a story Monticello was telling of itself at the time and that really pointed way things were left out or just glossed over in this really specific way. But I also um, think it's, it's more than that. And so I wanted to create a character who by all rights should be able to feel like this space is hers and that she could claim it. Not only is she a descendant of the person who designed the house and had the wealth and means with, it, with which to have it built, Thomas Jefferson, but she's also a descendant of the Hemings family who um, were, you know, her mom was basically gifted to Thomas Jefferson uh, through his wife's family. And Sally Hemings was also, um, um, half-sisters with Martha Jefferson. So this is a family, the Hemings, who served the Jeffersons in this really intimate way, who were some of the cooks of the Jefferson family, who were some of the craftspeople who built the most beautiful parts of the house, and all the, the wealth of the enslaved people that worked and lived there allowed for this house to be. So if not her, then who? And so a big part of her um, journey in the in the novella in the 19 days they spend on that hill is grappling with the ways in which she doesn't feel it's hers and then her kind of coming to this sense of it, it of it being a kind of home um, 
it's a home in part because her grandmother, Ma Violet, is there, and home is where your family is. Um, it's a home for her because she has this sense of ancestry there, and, and home is where you imagine you know, people like you have lived and died and, and struggled, and it's home. Um, you know, she talks about how her home in town has been used as kindling, and this place has been preserved, this idea of the snow globe of this, of this space. And um, so it is her emotionally grappling with what she hasn't, and also saying this space could be mine. And it's a very fraught kind of claiming, but it's definitely um, was important to me to think about. Thank you. Thank you. So I'd like to ask each of you, you know, as, as you were you know, working on, on each of these, these works here, who was your imagined audience? Um, because I think all three of you, in, in some ways, are explaining something to someone. You know, you're, you're trying to convey a, a certain message to um, someone. Who, who is the target audience for um, each of these incredible works? <laughs> Imani's looking at me. Uh, <clears throat> well, I would, I think there are lots of people who may, everybody thinks they know about Mississippi. Yeah. You know, that's what, that's what Nina Simone said, everybody knows about Mississippi, goddamn, and yes, everybody thinks that they know, but what, I think that I was really trying to get to the people who thought that they knew this place, but getting them to know it even better, uh, and or to even think that it was there. There are people who say I would never, ever go to Mississippi, You've, and that and and I you know my response to that is what Malcolm X said: everything south of the Canadian border is Mississippi, and even, and even Canada sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I I think I was really trying to get those to those readers who would think they would never, there was nothing redeeming about Mississippi and getting them to, to see that. And, and as someone who comes from Mississippi, we have a need to explain ourselves because we have a lot to explain. And that's what I was trying to do, to, ex, to explain this to people who would think they would never want to go there, but as a result are thinking, maybe it's a place that, that is worth, worth going to. I've never been more excited in my life to go to Mississippi. Honestly, <laughs> I would say. And, and, you know, and honestly, and a, and a part of that, you know, being a native Virginian, and I think those of you who are from Virginia, we've all kind of inherited this. I mean, it is a, it's a, it's a special type of elitism, where we have this attitude towards the Deep South. You know, it's the Virginia way. You know, we weren't as violent, we weren't as racist. When in reality, a lot of that is is our own denial, right? Um, and I think your book has really opened my eyes. I mean, I've never actually been to Mississippi. I've been to Alabama, I've been to Louisiana, never to Mississippi. Well, you know, I think this is something we, we were talking about in an exchange we had. I, <clears throat> I was saying that I felt that, that Virginians don't really confront the, the, the emotional violence that is sometimes a part of the culture of Virginia, which is also akin to British colonialism. Just, it's kind of part, it's, it seems to be buried in the culture. When I came here, someone <clears throat> excuse me, told me, well, you know, you're from Mississippi, you, know, you integrated, you went to the University of Mississippi, they integrated with violence. 
and it wasn't integrated with violence here, but then when I started to dive into the oral histories of the men who came here, there was this deep emotional violence that they suffered through. And that feels very, very British. And that's, and I think that idea of, of, of being British upper class aristocrats and the FFV, all of those things are ways that I think Virginians think of themselves. I mean, I think even Faulkner felt that. He said that all Mississippians aspire to be Virginians. <laughs> and that I'm not one of them. <laughs> what about you, Jocelyn? As you were writing, and I guess you know yours is maybe a little bit more indirect. I mean, clearly, uh, Imani and, and Ralph are, are conveying very kind of clear, direct messages. But through fiction, I think there's there's maybe some more uh, sub subversion happening. Um, who who is? Who yeah, who are you writing to? <laughs> to be entirely honest, there's a, well, when I wrote this book, no one was waiting for it, which is when you're writing and you don't know who your audience will be, that can be a little bit scary and there's this desire to have this sense of audience, but there's also a real freedom in that I've really come to realize. Um, and so each story emerged as a series of reactions to things and it, often things that I found painful or difficult or I didn't know what to do with them and then um, I really was writing to figure things out. So I was a public school art teacher for a long time and I had to take graduate courses in art and I took a class once called Drawing as a Language of Thought. And it was a class not to draw what you knew about something but to draw towards what you could figure out about it. What can you discover through drawing this thing? What can you show that wasn't apparent to you to begin with? And I think that's the way that I approach these stories. There was something I was had a very strong reaction to uh, in the first story, Control Negro. Um, it was a reaction to, uh, if you all were here in 2015, uh, on UVA campus when Martise Johnson, a college student, was bloodied by uh, uniformed officers along, um, along the, the strip there, along the corner, right? So it left me with a series of like questions and a feeling, uh, an urgent feeling of just discomfort and then writing toward that in the story and not knowing exactly where that would go. And the story doesn't reflect exactly that, but it has all these pieces of it, right? So it's like I've kind of broken apart this real event and then re-pieced it together. So there's a way I'm writing for myself. And I think part of that is because when I start to imagine you or when I start to imagine an audience, I want to tell them what they want to hear and I want to comfort them and I want to say things that would be um, you know, I think about being a public school teacher in the way that you want to make people feel at ease. And I think fiction for me as a space, my identity as a writer is where I'm going with the things that are uneasy for me and that don't fit very well. And for some reason, I can trick myself into the idea that no one will read it and that hopefully you all won't judge me too badly when you do. Um, <clears throat> so, um, but then once it becomes a thing in the world, I definitely start to imagine like what is my fantasy for what this might do? And I think there's, with these stories in particular with this project, I had this way in which I wanted to center the outsider. When I talked about Denasia Love being the center of Monticello and it being her story. Um, and also 
decent or the insider, and that maybe there could be readers that read through the stories and in some moments they felt inside or outside of stories, that that could change from story to story depending on the narrator we were with and uh, how, what they were doing and how they were feeling. Um, but I feel really happy when I hear someone, like for instance, with the first story, which is about violence towards you know, uh, black people and people of color, say, I, I recognize that, if I hear like a black mother say, I recognize that weird thing that you talked about and the psychological damage that you're describing, even, and it feels like you've named a thing that was important to me and I didn't quite have you know, the, the, wor the words for, I hadn't really thought about it that way, that, that always makes me happy. And it also makes me happy when someone who felt like an insider feels decentered. Um, uh, my parents uh, had a, <laughs> uh, they're out there somewhere, but they had a, a financial advisor who read the story Control ne Negro, and in that story there's the convention of these ACMs, average American Caucasian males that the professor, this Frankenstein-like black professor, is looking at them in comparison to his son as a scientific control, control Negro. And so um, he said, he called my parents after reading the story, this, this white person, this white man, that they didn't know very well, and said, am I an ACM? <laughs> and I love that so much. <laughs> I mean, my answer is actually in many ways the same as what, what both Ralph and Jocelyn said, in the sense that um, I guess, you know, part of the point for me of the book was to dispose people of the mythology and tell a truer story, but it's very clearly, I just say, it's, this is not a history, though it's a true story, because it is less, you know, and I've written histories where it's like sort of exegesis argument, I'm corralling my evidence. It's more want, it's more perspective question, right? To look from the outside, right? So when I, I tell the story of an ancestor who was born in 1769 in Maryland, who comes of age as the country is formed without her being considered and wanting to maintain that frame of reference throughout the travel such that, and part of, for me, the reason I, I go unconventional places and have encounters, the most significant encounters aren't necessarily in the places one would anticipate because the point is to shift the frame of reference and to encounter, and so to encounter the places differently because these are not official stories, right? And, and underneath the official story is actually a more, I think, there's a lot of truth about what human relation actually consists of and what relation to the land, right? That's not, uh, that is in some ways is a heroic story, but it's not a romantic one. Thank, thank you. And for, for the audience, um, uh, yes, please give a round of applause. We're, we're gonna take questions. We're gonna put the microphones um, in the aisles. And so if you have a question or, or you, you think you might wanna ask something, we're gonna get ready to put the mics up and you can just line up in the aisle um, so you can ask any of our authors um, or burning questions you may have. So and I think, Ralph, you, you've really kind of begun to, to answer this. What is the, I guess, what, what is the narrative you're, you're attempting to correct or confront? Um, what is the myth and, and kind of what is the reality you're hoping to, 
to counter with? Well, I, I think the, the, the major myth that I was, I felt that I was really confronting was that all of Mississippi's literature originated in the Mississippi Delta and, and among a very white elite group of writers. I think that was the, the place where I really wanted to, that's the mythology I wanted to dispel, which is why I began the book on the Gulf Coast with the work of Natasha Trethewey and Jespin Ward, also talking about you know, Gilbert Mason and the Wadens there to let you know, you know that I, I look at that beach and I see blood on that sand. Um, and then ending it at Parchman Penitentiary in a writing class. And again, getting people to think about when you pass by a prison, who's inside? This, there's this huge, uh, I say that parchment is this huge wound on the landscape of the Delta. And it is filled with ghosts. And, and I, you, you feel those, the presence of those ghosts when you're, you're there at parchment. And I wanted people to feel that and to begin to, to think that there's this mythology that the people who are in Parchman deserve to be there. But what I really discovered in my time there is that many of them were there because of the failure of our education system. That here I am discussing um, you know, Oscar Wilde's De Profundis with a group of prisoners, just as I would in a seminar class at the University of Mississippi and trying to dispel some of that myth about who is in there, why they are there, and let's begin to think differently about the connection between this you know, school to prison pipeline. And that's, and that's that those are, those are Mississippi writers too. And, and I would pose the same question to you, Jocelyn, you know, even though you're working with fiction, you know, what are some of the truths that you're, you're hoping to convey through your work? The, I don't know if I came to it exactly like that just because there's, you know, there's five stories, there's a novella, they each have a, a, a different feel, a different character, a different sense of voice. But I, I would look at, um, you know, I read from Virginia's Not Your Home, that was kind of a hypothesis or an idea, like a starting point for the project. Um, and then the project is called My Monticello, which all immediately begs the question, who are you, who's speaking, whose is it, um, who's, you know, I think it goes a little bit to what Amani was saying by a shift of perspective, right? A shift of frame, who's gonna be in the center of the frame. In the, in the novella, the, you know, the main character, at one point she utters really like, um, nervously like, my Monticello, and then later a little bit more forcefully, but the, that's her call out, but the answer is, at some point when the script comes together is our Monticello, and how are we gonna break apart the idea of ownership so that it can encompass a more full sense of who we are as a community because as a public school teacher and as the person that I am I think ultimately you know the nativism we have in these kind of factions and wanting to be with our in-group it's not going to save us so we have problems that transcend and are bigger than um, that are big let's put it that way and we need to be able at some level to um, invest in everybody, right? You're talking about yeah. people who are considered not worthless. 
I don't subscribe to that at all. And I, I think there's a way in which um, ours has to become something really big and really sturdy and that's that structure that our infrastructure can can hold up. Um, and so I think that's that's kind of what I don't know if that answered your question oh, no. at all, but that's definitely what I was thinking definitely. about. No, it does. Thank you. What about you, Imani? Um, I think, you know, the sort of what's behind everything for me is and the book is, in a sense, an invitation to walk through southern landscapes and history and encounters with the hope that something gets triggered in the reader, this, this sort of the association where they then also, there's an, they experience invocation of their own experiences, their own associations with home. Um, but the but the reach for all like the sort of the, the end goal for that sort of fresh eyes and the sort of combination of the sort of critical and emotional and intellectual and spiritual dimension of these of sort of what it means to encounter people and places and land is actually about wanting us to move towards being in right relation to each other and the land itself. Right. It is so in some sense the the book sort of has a, a kind of turn at the end that is a, that people have told me reads as sermonic, but it's sort of the whole point, right? So if the, we begin, the nation begins with both this incredible violence and this incredible desire to build and create and accumulate. And so part of the goal is sort of rethinking human beings and this incredibly beautiful, abundant landscape to try to kind of, you know, push us to moving towards the right, the right relation, undoing that original sin. So. Thank you, thank you. Okay. So you have a question. Is it on? Okay, I'll start again. My morning began at First Baptist Church in Williamsburg, and if you don't know about it, you need to learn about it. And it ends here this evening, and I have a comment and a question for the four of you. As I know more about your stories and share vicariously in the hurt that each of you have experienced, I see love and kindness emanating from you. What has helped you to approach life and your experiences that way and not with the anger and hurt that would be so understandable based upon what each of you and your families have experienced. I mean, I'm furious. <laughs> yeah. So, I'm, you know, I, yeah, I don't, I don't feel as though, I, I so appreciate that question because I think it's important to understand that that love and kindness and generosity can coexist with rage. And for me, that's absolutely the case. 
I mean, there's just so much indecency and violence and ugliness that persists. And, you know, there's moments I wake up and I was like, my mother was born in a white nationalist state and she has to deal with this again, right? I mean, I just, you know, it, it infuriates me. So, but, you know, also part, the other part of the story is being poured into people who taught you that you had value and integrity and the moral high ground, right, irrespective of what the society, the messages the society gave you in, in, in the values, right, um, that, were poor, that, were, that, we, that animated our, our lives and our doings, often in contradiction to what the larger society said about us. So, um, yeah, it, it's, it's not, yeah, it's, it's not the absence of rage. It's just the love is the greater of the two. I, I, would have, I would have to agree with that. I think that it, you know, it's one of the things that you know, Casey Lehman and I talk about all the time is about, he's saying that, he says, Ralph has his quiet anger. And it's that, and that's, and yeah, I wake up angry. And it's, it's difficult not to be because I see, I grew up in Mississippi during the Civil Rights Movement. I, I mean, I sat on Medgraver's lap a few weeks before he was murdered. And, I, and that's, a, that's a very strong memory for me. And I feel in some ways that the, that time is still haunting us and it's, and it's still coming back. And that if we don't really grapple with all of this, we're going to be dealing with that all over again. And I think that's what's so powerful about Jocelyn's book is it does make you think about what is it that we don't do. And, and, and I think that's one of the things that a work of the imagination can do that maybe a work of nonfiction can't do. And I always tell people I'm a nonfiction writer because I'm bad at making shit up. And that's, <laughs> that's why. But, I'm, but when, I, when I see someone do it so skillfully and I see uh, that's, I, I keep thinking, I wish I could do that. <laughs> I'm an elementary school teacher, so I'd say you can. <laughs> I, I absolutely love what both uh, both speakers said. I, you know, my persona as a, a public school teacher is absolutely honest, which is like the Mr. Rogers of teachers. I'm like, I got my cardigan, I got my chime. Come one, come all, I love you. And I absolutely do. Um, but that doesn't mean that I don't notice that how some kids come, um, how some kids are forced to come, the inequities that exist in the school, the history of inequities, um, the way things are when I, it is, I think one of you mentioned, it's heartbreaking to see my parents who had this very aspirational um, kind of view of America that contained a ton of sacrifice, have to look at what is happening now. So the things are not incompatible. I, we contain multitudes. There's a way in which we can hold these things side by side. And there's a way in which we can be generous. And the, the place where my generosity comes from is my, just my way of being, my spirit, the love that I got from my family, all the beautiful and privileged things I've had in my life. Those things don't have to be, they aren't separate. And when you see someone bring a moment of anger that doesn't mean that's all they are. It's what they're choosing and maybe need to show at that moment or to a purpose of something. And so I think there's, um, there can be a lot of fear of that and there's a, 
a way that's stereotyped to mean one thing, but I don't think that's the whole truth. And I think that we need to change that kind of narrative and that stereotype and kind of look at it a little differently. And, and, and I don't have anything to add, except I, I did want to just read a few words that Jocelyn wrote. Um, I mean, I know you didn't write it to answer this question, but it, I think it resonates. You, you wrote uh, laughing because sometimes you've got to laugh just to breathe. And I think that, that, that says it all. I mean, it, it is survival. You know, joy is a part of our survival. It's the way that you know, we're able to get through you know, the, the challenges and difficulties that we face across generations. And holding on to that joy is what allows us to continue to push forward. So as you all have beautifully said, you know, it isn't mutually exclusive. One thing helps get past the other. I thought someone was, there was another question. Greetings, thank you all for being here. I'm Tanya Brockett and I host a podcast, Write Something Worthy. And there we talk about the author's journey and what it takes for them to become who they are as an author. As a black writer, do you feel that your publishing journey was more labored, longer in coming, harder to achieve success in as a result of being a person of color? I'd love, I, that's a great question. I'd love to hear kind of what each of your journeys were with, with publishing. I know big publishing has a bad rep. Uh, in well, a, in I, some worked, I worked yeah. in the business for many, yeah. many years. So, <clears throat> so I kind of know how the sausage is made. And that, and I think that probably helped in, in some ways, but there still were, um, there are little hiccups along the way. You know, my, my first book was, was a memoir and kind of, and I was going back and forth in time. And there was a very well-known editor who had acquired a very prominent memoir by a black person. He told me, this is the way you should do that memo your memoir because this is the way this writer did it. And I remember walking out of that meeting and my agent turned to me and said, I know you want to be published here, but you cannot be published. You, he cannot be your editor. And so there have been encounters like that along the way that, you know, little hiccups, but I've always known how the business worked. And you know, being one of the few black people in, in publishing, you understand that sometimes it is that you know, maybe they've acquired their black book at this moment. That happened a lot. It doesn't happen as much, but it still happens. I'll just say that I uh, have been writing since I was seven, and my, I, my debut came out when I was 50. <laughs> um, I had several other projects that I tried to, you know, that I wrote that were decent books and they did not, you know, they weren't published. Uh, I wrote lots of short stories, did all kinds of other things. Um, it's so hard to know precisely. It's like, it's like climate change. Climate change is real, but you can't say this particular storm was this way and it could be crazy making, right? For me, that wasn't the focus. I just had this determination, but you just never know. In the first story that I wrote, Control Negro, the, the professor says at one point, how do you know, how does, some, how does anyone know whether they're getting more or less than they deserve? 
he's reflecting on his life at this university and he's wondering, how can anyone know? How do we know how we're being valued? It's really difficult. Um, so I think there can be a survival way that can, for me, the survival technique, I'll just say it this way, was to not focus on that because it was something outside of my control and to focus on the stories that I wanted to tell and how I wanted to make them. And eventually, with this project, I had a really clear sense of intention of finding people who believed in the project as I hoped for it to be and how I saw it in the world and were bringing, who were adding value to it with the way that they saw it. And that was really wonderful because I think before it was kind of like, Am I good enough? Do you like me? And then at the end I was like, this is what I'm doing. Do you, would you like to be a partner with me? Are you excited about this? Does this seem interesting to you? Which was a real shift for me. Um, and it took you know, a while to get to that space. So it's, it, I find that a difficult question to answer because um, I have experienced sort of different parts of the world of publishing. So this is my seventh book. The, the majority of the books I wrote were academic books. Those have their own particular sort of, that, that world is a sort of, has its own inequalities that have more to do with the hierarchies of institutions than race overtly at least. And so that's a sort of different arena. Um, but I, and you know, so this is the first time, but there are lots of people who are like, this must be your first book because we've never heard of anything else you've ever written. <laughs> Um, which is interesting, and I, but I, here's what, I, my frame of reference on this. I think that there are a couple different logics around thinking about the world of publishing. One of which is sort of the, and, I, and, and something you just said, Jocelyn, really, really resonated for me, like if the idea is to get out the thing that you are trying, like you want it, write in your voice and say the thing that you're trying to say that's a different logic than getting published, which means that there may be more barriers longer than if, you know, and this goes back to what you just said, Ralph, right? There, there's, there are some formulas out there, right, to getting a particular kind of attention and getting access, but when you're driven by there's this thing that I need to say in this way that I need to say it, you're not moved about in the same way, but that also means that it can be harder, especially if people are like, I've never seen a black person do this thing before, right? Um, and so for me, the focus is let, I mean, obviously we need to talk about the incredible inequality in every single industry, but I'm also really interested in sort of, as, as Bell Hooks used to say, laying the path bare, like us having conversations with each other about here's what I know about this industry, here's what I know about advances, here's what I know about promotion, like so that people, so that everybody can, as many people as possible can go and informed about the process in a way that mediates some of the inequality in it. Oh, you all are applauding <laughs> responses about publishing. This is, this is awesome. I hope I have an easy question for you all. I, I really want to find out what um, older readers who've gotten to read chapters or all of your work, older readers have, have said in response, older African-American leaders, uh, readers especially. And I want to take a minute to uh, acknowledge, uh, I'm here with my ninth grade English teacher, Mr. David Eddy. <laughs> After 40 years, we're getting to hang out listening to folks talk about books. And he is awesome. And I'm glad his uh, wife 
let them hang out and have a guy's night. So there's questions for, for Mr. Eddie and me. What have older readers thought about what you've written? Define older. Yeah, or, or, um, I guess right. Uh, let's say 70 and above. <laughs> or, or maybe, I mean, to open it up a little bit more, have, have you noticed like, generational differences in, in the responses to your works? And what have those responses been, like, how they you know, varied? I've actually had you know, younger, writer, younger readers responding to this book. It's actually being used in a class right now on Mississippi writers at the University of Mississippi. And my friend who's teaching that class says it's been very enthusiastic because I think the, the students are beginning to get a sense of this is part of the heritage of, of their state that in some ways wasn't part of what they were taught in Mississippi history. And that's... Um, so in, in that way, it's been really enlightening to see that. And then also hearing older readers say, you introduced me to a writer that I maybe didn't know about, like you know, William Attaway, who you know, wrote this book, Blood on the Forge, that I think is well worth reading, who was a contemporary of Richard Wright's. Um, but his whole publishing career was um, it's kind of tanked by a bad review by an, another writer by the name of Ralph Ellison. So. <laughs> so, I would say it's kind of been split down the middle for me. You know, I've had um, older readers and younger readers, different generations. It just, I think it's hard to know, right? You put this thing in, you have this baby, you make this thing, you put it out in the world. There's a pandemic going on. You don't know what's happening. Someone writes you an email. They really liked your book. Like, you know, you're kind of like piecing together these things. One thing I do really, that I'm so excited about and that I could not have expected in a million years is that, you know, there are people teaching the book. You know, there are, um, you know, at Sweetbriar College, they're gonna do it as a common read. So that whole community is going to read that book. Um, my good friend, Lisa Wolfark, who interviewed me the other day, she, um, it's an awesome you know, conversation. I encourage everyone to watch the video. She's so music. fun. Yes, yes she, she was is. so funny. I was like, oh no, I need to get more entertaining. She is great. <laughs> um, she, you know, taught this to undergrads at UVA, and she said that several, several of her students, you know, read the con story Control Negro, which is about an incident that happened at UVA. It's a fictional story. This father, this Frankenstein-like father, is telling the story of his. Um, of secretly monitoring his son, you know, and compared to these ACMs. And they, they thought it was a real person <laughs> and that, you know, someone needed to do something about him, that he was a real professor <laughs> on campus. Um, you know, I think there's just a variety of responses. I guess it's hard for me to, to pinpoint it, but I, you hope when you write something that it will find its readers. There's a way in which you're, it's like a band. You can dress up as a soul band, but Who's going to come see you? You're defined by who comes see who comes and see you, who who shows up, right? You can be kind of cloaked one way and really appeal to someone else. And I think I'm still looking out there, like I'm looking at you all. Who is coming? And I think it's a, you know, I hope it's a variety of people. I think I think that's what I would hope for. Um, I'll just say quickly two things. One. Um, one of my most important interlocutors in the book, Dr. Walter Evans, I had to read the book to make, he's a, a physician, a, a retired 
surgeon who lives in Savannah is an incredible art collector, but also just told me so many stories. And he read the book and he said, how you know about all this stuff? And he said, how you know about flounder gigging? Nobody your age knows about flounder gigging, right? And I was like, well, this is because I, I listened to you. And everywhere I went, I tried to listen to older people. And that's sort of a habit I've had in my life. And so it actually has meant a lot when, when people who are significant, you know, people who are in their 80s, late 70s, 80s, 90s have said that it resonates with them. That means a huge amount. And, and a, another person actually sent me a picture of her mother who has dementia reading the book and saying down home, down home.